Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. As you no doubt heard, the strike that had, well, shut down, I guess is the right word. Although, to be honest, I, I didn't really notice much. But nonetheless, shut down the federal government, the federal bureaucracy for a while, settled this week. And the union is getting basically 3% a year over four years. You can love that. You can hate that. doesn't really matter. That's what's going to happen. Nonetheless, there are now a number of experts and not people who are anti-union or anti-worker experts, just experts who are saying this is going to have a ripple effect because a lot of other unions, private and public, are going to look at this and we are probably going to see more strikes and bigger demands. Is that realistic or was this unique because there were so many workers and there was so much strength behind this union? Let me bring in Eric Cam. He is uh, associate professor and the director of the International Economics and Finance Undergraduate Program at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thank you for this today. My pleasure. Well, um, is this and this settlement and the amount of the settlement and the uh, $2,500 payment to each person, is this going to be the kind of thing that makes all the other public sector unions who have deals coming up say, we want at least this, if not more? How can it not? I mean, when you look at labor deals and negotiation over the last 20 or 30 years, there is such a contagion effect. All it takes is someone to get the lid off the bottle, which is a lot looking like what this is, um, we know that we've been stuck for a few years at this magic number of 1% in the public sector for wage increases. I've said it on your show before, Scott, that's my wage increase per year. And a lot of people have been what they feel uh, unfairly constrained by this 1% number. Well, that seems to be over. We know that the courts found that number to be unconstitutional. And I think what you're seeing now is the beginning of, I won't say a landslide, but how can other unions, public sector and even potentially private sector, not look at this kind of a deal and say, well, now we're we're approaching the rate of inflation. So now, at least in our next deal, we can keep up with the price of going to the gas station and the grocery store. So, yes, my long winded answer is yes. When you marry this type of reaction, this type of victory, which I think it is, by the way, compared to previous deals, with the fact that the 1% scarecrow has been torn down, I think you're going to see a lot more unions getting a lot louder about, thank you very much, PSAC, but what is in this for me now? Yeah, so 3% would now, I'm assuming for many of the unions, 3% is now at least the starting point, or at least the, it's got to be at least 3% or else we're not going to settle because this is now the bar. And not only is it the bar, but, and I'm not sure people have noticed yet, but if you look at sort of the most, most, most recent macroeconomic statistics, especially on food prices, believe it or not, they are coming down. Now they're coming down slowly, but they're coming down. And so you're going to have the heads of unions telling their members, how would you like to have a wage increase that now we can confidently say will keep up with the rate of increase of prices? And so how can you blame workers? I don't blame one worker for looking at their executive membership and saying, I want a piece of that pie. I want to be no worse off after inflation. And so, yeah, I think the floodgates are going to open. And as you know, Scott, we've talked on your show before, there are two ways to create inflation. One is demand 
and one is supply. And my real fear is that just as prices are starting to come down, we are going to have almost an unprecedented level of of supply induced inflation. It's called supply push inflation. If you're going to have people have their wages go up, that's going to almost have a, um, a cyclical effect of, well, I want my wages to go up. And then prices we know go up when wages go up. So it, it may be self-defeating or almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that the people who want their wages to go up to finally keep up with inflation may in fact, sadly, trigger inflation. But will it really do that though? And the reason I ask that is the, the theory makes all the sense in the world. And I think it's not just theory. I think it's practical, but not everybody is going to be getting this. Many people in the private sector will never see a 12, 12 and a half percent wage increase over four years. So yes, some people's salaries and pay availability is going to go up, but is it really going to boost inflation if half the population doesn't see the same thing? I think it could. I think it could. I think our economy is vulnerable right now. It took a long time for prices to even start moving in a downward direction. And that downward direction was was kind of, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, uh, assumed that wages were going to stay fixed for a while to kind of let things settle in the economy. I think the Bank of Canada fully assumed, well, if we can keep wages fairly constant and bring down prices, we can increase people's standards of living. Um, we have a large public sector in this country. Some people would say it's too big. I might argue that's true, even though that's the trough from which I eat. But uh, we have a lot of public sector workers. And I think if each of them, if each of them now gets between even two to three percent wage increases, yeah, well, I think prices go up. I don't know, but it sure could it may stall prices coming down, Scott. Will there be or is there really any cause now for any level of government? to not give three percent like it, let's let's say a provincial union in ontario or saskatchewan wherever decides that they want this can any province now stand up and say no three percent is too much or has this announced that no it's very reasonable you know negotiations are a funny thing um everybody is profit maximizing the unions are going to ask for more and the provinces are going to ask for less and the agreements are going to come out in the middle somewhere, depending on people's bargaining power, propensity to have a strike, propensity to have a lockout. You know, it depends on a, a super number of factors in the labor market. But I, I do think it's a concern that people have been saying for such a long time that what we need is the standards of living to rise again because they've been falling since the end of the pandemic. And to me, as a macroeconomist, you know, I like the idea of people bringing in more money. I think that's super important and everybody wants to earn more money. But how much more and how much more at one time? And if it's going to trigger increases in the price level and increases in the price level of the of the core goods that people buy, well, you really got to be careful what you wish for. And I'm not saying prices will go up faster, slower or equal to the rates of wage increases, but it definitely is a factor. If enough people start earning enough more money, you know what they're going to do with it, Scott? They're going to spend it. And while that sounds great on a micro level, on a macro level, it could be, here we go again. Let me flip around the question I just asked you though, before this, when I said, okay, so is there any reason why you should not expect that 3% is now the minimum? What if it's the flip? Could could every province or every other federal union be faced with the answer, look, 3% is what's a reasonable number. We're not going above 3%. Could it be the opposite effect? 
Um, I guess it could. I guess it, I guess, listen, anything is possible. This is the theory versus practice or dogmatism or pragmatism of economics. Um, I think that once there's a number that's kind of drawn in the sand, that tends to be where everybody moves toward and management will try to move away from it and labor will try to move toward it. And, you know, the answer will be in the middle. But one wild card that I'd like to bring into line here is, of course, the topic of time. Um, time is now ticking away. It's not just yesterday anymore that we saw the interest rate rises and the mortgage rate increases. And again, it's a personal thing, but I'm not alone in fearing the future of our housing market. And as people's mortgages are now maybe a year away from being renegotiated, they're going to be renegotiated at a much higher rate than they used to be. And you say, so what does this have to do with what we're talking about? It's prices in general. It's people's standards of living in general. 3% may not look as exciting if your mortgage doubles when you have to renegotiate. So yeah, on a partial equilibrium level, do I think this 3% number is the new line in the sand? Yes, but the macroeconomy is a, a great big thing. And so I just ask the listeners to think about what, you know, there's a lot of positives and they're almost obvious of wage increases, but there, but there can be a slippery slope. Uh, one quote from the uh, head of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, this strike sets sends up a flare that illuminates the landscape. It's kind of an interesting uh, comment that uh, that we should probably expect that if anyone's not going to give at least this much now, uh, they're probably setting themselves up for, for something. Uh, Eric Camp from Toronto Metropolitan University. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Stay healthy. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'll tell you what else had the sound of silence. Last night's CFL draft. I mean, I, it, you're going up against the Leafs' first second, the first playoff game in the second round for the Leafs in two decades almost. I mean, it's bad timing. It's bad fortune. It's bad luck. But boy, are you ever seeming to miss a chance if you're the CFL. Just to be, yeah, almost. Let me bring in Steve Foxcroft. He is a sports analyst. He's a ref. He's an official. He does everything in sports. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you, Scott? Uh, look, I'm doing better than the CFL has to be this morning or last night. They had to be absolutely in the CFL head office kicking themselves or beating their heads against a wall or something when they looked at the schedule for the NHL and said, are you kidding that we're going up against the Leafs? Well, would you think that back a few months ago when they picked the date, in the office they probably thought they were geniuses. They could say, let's do it the first night of the second round where we know we'll have the southern Ontario market locked up because there's no chance the Leafs. It'll be the 20th year in a row we could do it on that night and not have Leaf fans. And, and you're probably right to a degree, but to me, Steve, it, it's one of those things where, yeah, but... Like, what What if, and you knew that while what you just said is probably 80% odds, you also had to know that if you fall into that 20%, you're screwed because nobody is going to watch. And this time, it, 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 like, I don't know whether to blame the CFL for bad choices or to feel sorry for the CFL that it happened like this, but it just, what, it, the, we we see what a week ago last week the NFL draft it's such an event 
It's such an. It, I saw this week that they not only had the NFL draft last week, they had on ESPN or TNT, I can't remember, a post NFL draft pick by pick breakdown show. Like they're just dragging this thing out forever and getting great ratings. The CFL's draft, I bet you, I don't know if it's possible to have negative ratings, but they might have. It was a, it was unfortunate, and you know it's just one of those things that it does happen. There's probably other people in the same boat, right? That got got stuck with that. So it is too bad. And I don't think you can compare it. like the NFL draft. You you're right. They've made it a spectacle. Yes, they've made it like tickets get scalped for it. Teams bid on it. Like right now, I'm sure the CFL like everything is in sports. It's kind of dictated by television. And I'm sure TSN said, look, it needs to be early in the week. It needs to be at this time. Da, 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 da. Uh, this is where we have an opening. So I'm sure that's part of the decision based on television. And, you know, sometimes you just can't be right nowadays doing anything at this time of year with NBA playoffs, baseball starting, NHL playoffs. And the people I feel sorry for, how about the Edmonton fans who bought tickets and flights to yes. go to Vegas for the playoffs. And I've never heard of this before. The NHL moved the game by yeah. a day. Yeah, no, there's stuff going on that is just crazy. But let me, let me go, I want to get to the NHL. Let's go back to the CFL for just one second, right. though, because I do believe, as I said, I do believe that you're right most years that, hey, the Leafs aren't going to be in it. But the Oilers still were, are, mm-hmm. and could have been the could have been the Jets as well when you booked this. So you could have had, I mean, we're not living in an island here in southern Ontario. There's other parts of Canada where they're also distracted and there could have been games in the playoffs. If the CFL draft has never been able to become the big event that they really would love it to, and who wouldn't want it to be that? Mm-hmm. Why not do something completely different and do it on a Saturday at noon, let's say, when now you know you're not running up against anything and you can have people who are fans tune in to watch it and you've got your own, like, I don't know, it doesn't seem that difficult to try and find a moment when you could have the audience to yourself. I think that's a good suggestion too, and something that I'm sure they'll look at going forward too on a on a Saturday or Sunday at noon. Because what you just said too, usually the afternoon games that they have are the American teams on the American network, right? Like generally, there's the odd time that it's more later in the afternoon, maybe three ish or something like that. But I do like the idea, like a noon, eleven thirty pregame noon first pick type of thing, and that might be good with TSN. I, I think, you know, the only thing you're going up against there with them probably is like the European soccer stuff and their fans. So there's always going to be some conflict, but I like the suggestion. Like now, a noon start Saturday. Now that said, the other challenge the CFL has, and this is there's nothing the CFL can do about this. There is no blame to be had, I don't believe, on this, but it's a challenge. The, the guys who are drafted in the CFL draft are not the, and I don't mean this physically, I mean positionally, they're not the sexiest guys in the world. When when you're drafting offensive linemen, defensive linemen, and linebackers, like you're, you're, you're never seeing quarterbacks drafted. You're seeing a few receivers drafted, but most of them have played for Canadian universities and fans don't really know who the heck they are. How do you, or is there a way to make the CFL draft 
resonate with people more when you're not dealing with the, the guys who will ultimately be the stars on the field. And I think that's part of it, too, is what you're saying, what they're up against, too. There's not the sexy names. There's not the names that you see on TV every week in and week out, that type of thing, because they're down in the States. A lot of the CFL draft guys, they kind of are those mid-majors in the NCAA or, of course, playing at a good CIS school. You know, like, and I like what the Ticats did with their draft. They kind of mixed it up a little bit. They got a little bit of everything. They actually drafted a DB, which I was like, yeah, that's great. You know, and we've had some great Canadian DBs on the Ticats over the years too. Yeah, no, they, look, it, it, it's, it's such a challenge. And, and for those of us who, who want this league to do well, it just, this is one of those things. And I know it's an unfair, it's, it's always an unfair comparison mm-hmm. when you have just watched the NFL draft. It's a terrible comparison because it's not the same thing. It's apples and oranges. Mm. But Which we, we talk about the CFL and NFL, like you and I both appreciate and like football. Yeah, I've and, never understood why people can't, if they say, oh, I'm a CFL fan, I don't like the NFL, or I like the NFL, I don't like the CFL, why can't you like both? Yeah, and that's where we are. Like, that's what I do. I like both, and I appreciate both for what they bring to the table, and I guess I have an open mind to this as well when it comes to it. The the draft, it will never be, for, and you pointed out perfectly why, because you just don't have the big names that are going to be going in the draft. And I even like what Ottawa did first overall. They flew a guy across the country to introduce them at their draft party, which I thought was a classy move. Like, well done, Ottawa, for doing that. And it's just a thing that there's also what we're going up against here, too, when we try to find the date. But I do love your Saturday noon start time for the draft. But you're up against every league has their calendar of business as well, right? So the window of opportunity for all the business to get done is is a small window. You know, the draft has to be done. And I'm sure there's more reasons than I even know, probably because the school calendar affects it too, like kids, whether they... Yeah, they, yeah, but say, today's I'm Wednesday. After I'm not, that kind of thing. But Steve, today is Wednesday. Yesterday, the draft, it was on a Tuesday. So have the draft last Saturday or this Saturday. I can't imagine that it throws things off by that much. And the other thing I would say, and, and I, I've said this for a long time, you somehow have to add a round or do something where it's, I don't even know what you call it, where you have like the, the wild card pick or something where you have to take someone, some skill guy, or you have to draft. I don't know. Like right now they, the, right now they, they have the, um, the, what do you call it? The list, the, uh, the secret mm-hmm. list. Um, but, oh. Yeah, like you said, the international player. Find something where at least one team in the draft, add an extra round if you have to, but make sure that you're doing, you're drafting at least one person that football fans probably are aware of beforehand. Mm-hmm. Just to give the fans something, even like, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the super diehards. Like you, as a super diehard of, of all levels of football, including college, you were probably one of those guys who knew at least the names of a lot of the people taken, but I bet you 95% of people didn't. I would agree with that. And especially because what you said earlier is the positions that get drafted in the CFL draft are not those sexy positions, as we've said, right? Like, there's the guys that are in the trenches and so on. And even during a regular telecast, 
they don't get their names mentioned no, very often. No, and so the guy who Ottawa took first, and he is enormous, six foot six, mm-hmm. three hundred and twenty-four pound offensive lineman. But if I had said to you before I said CFL, if I just came on the radio and said I want to talk about Don, a, a guy you might be seeing Dante Bull, people might have thought that was like a guy in the WWE. Cause it's kind of got that name, a WWE. Dante Bull, the wrestler. It no, people would not have known who this person is. It's really tough, I think, to sell this to the fans when they are largely anonymous. Somehow they have to, maybe they, I mean, honestly, maybe they don't see, Steve, the value of the CFL draft because it's not something that can ever be turned into the NFL draft. I don't know. I I think that's part of it, right? Like, do what you do best, right? Like, like, I don't like it when Harvey's tries to do more than just a hamburger, you know? (laughs) Or Tim Hortons, yeah, yeah. We need donuts. We need good donuts. Exactly. Like, do what you do best. So focus on that. So they got the draft out of the way. And you're right, though. Unfortunately, the Leafs, for the first time in 19 years, make the second round. So I'm sure it hurt the ratings a little bit. Yeah. Maybe maybe you and I should declare. Remember they talked about, you said names people would know? You and I should be like special draft selections. We may drop a round or two, but, you know, we could be in the draft. I'll tell you one other one. There's one other way, and here's we got to run, but this is the crazy way, all right? So you've got nine teams in the league. Take nine guys who are big-name American players who potentially could come to the CFL under certain circumstances, but you don't really know. And you have a draw, a special draw to see who can either take those or it's just you pull their name and they go to that team. Something. Like, Some, a, like a Johnny Manziel back in the day. Back right? in the day. Who now, he didn't coming. pan out. He didn't pan out. But mm-hmm. come up with some gimmick that is at least going to make everyone go, oh, I'll, 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 I'll check it. I'll check at least that part. Yeah. I'll come in like, for that like part. what you're saying, he didn't pan out. But back when it was his draft. Very year, exciting. You, you know, if a draft year you took that guy, you claimed him. Yeah, that see something. three years later he might, you know, end up in your in your uh, in your uh, roster. We'll see. Hey, I just looked at the clock. I'm so far late. I got to let oh. you go. Steve Foxcroft, really appreciate you doing this as always. Thanks. Likewise, good to catch up. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Want to get into this uh, this topic though uh, quickly without any more introduction here because earlier this week I was not familiar with this particular person uh, although I maybe I should have been he's a Canadian Briton um, he works in the University of Toronto he's a very brilliant professor there uh, his name is Jeffrey Hinton he's known as the Godfather of artificial intelligence that's what a lot of people call him and earlier this week, we learned through a number of stories that he has quit his job at Google where he was working in artificial intelligence. And one of the reasons besides his age, he said, you know, he's 75, he says it's time. But one of the other reasons is he says that he has grave concerns about where, or great concerns, grave concerns about where artificial intelligence is going. Right now, he says, this is a quote, right now they're not more intelligent than us as far as I can tell, but I think they soon may be. And I'm reading this, and honestly, this sounds almost like a movie where you're saying, oh, the robots, the computers are taking over. And we, I mean, this has been the plot of how many movies over the years, many movies over the years. But now it seems as though there's truth to it. And it's 
hard to wrap our head, I think, around the fact that something that has been an idea of fiction may now be verging on reality. Dr. Ori Freeman is a postdoctoral fellow at, Mac, uh, at McMaster University's Digital Society Lab. Uh, he researched, let me read his uh, intro here, researching at the intersection of emerging technologies, democracy, and societal change with a focus on national AI policies, organizational adoption of responsible AI. Uh, I want to bring him in. Thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. As I say, when I introduce this, for the longest time, this has been a fictional idea that someday the computers are going to take over and, or the robots are going to take over or whatever else. And it's always been kind of something that was used as a scary plot in a movie, but it's until now, it was always just the idea of fiction. And I'm even now having a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that this might be true, but is it? So, um, as all truth, uh, there's some truth to it. Um, there's the very popularized uh, myth of uh, machine takeover scenarios uh, that might happen, might not happen. The uprising, you know, we, we, we imagine it with robots against humans and stuff like that. But actually, I think that what these high level profile um, uh, AI researchers warn are not from that these scenarios, but actually from uh, from scenarios in which we delegate more and more from our decisions to those machines and they're not aligned with what we want them to be aligned with. All right. Let's, let's get into that because you, uh, part of the reason I wanted to have you on, you are one of many academics and intellectuals who have signed an open letter urging for a pause in large artificial intelligence experiments. Let's, let's just like kind of take a pause here and figure out what we're doing. I think is the, is the sense. So what, in your mind, you did sign this letter, um, what, what is your main concern about where we're going with the idea of artificial intelligence? So what we discussed just a few seconds ago, the, that uh, scenario of like a um, very powerful artificial intelligence is not what I uh, specifically wor- worried from and others, uh, many others are actually worried from the social aspects of what's going on with AI and how it is used by governments and corporations and by us and its effect on society. In what way? So give me an example of, of something that would concern you if it's not, as you say, it's, if it's not the machines taking over in the, in the daunting militaristic way, give me an example of something that would concern you that we may see happen. Yeah, so um, I think we, most of the of the listeners uh, uh, came across what we call fake uh, deep fakes, right? Where there's a uh, video that's circulating that did not that not reflect anything that happened in reality, or or voice cloning that uh, now begins to attract more and more uh, um, uh, attention, or even with text, you we, it's it's so it becomes so easy to spread misinformation and to automate this process. So just think about elections, for example, and what would happen if day before the elections, um, all hell break loose and people use uh, these available technologies um, to, to do harm. Right. I mean, just, it was not that long ago. I remember we talked about it on the show, maybe four or five months ago, maybe not even that long. There was a deep fake, and usually we think of deep fakes with video, but it was an audio deep fake that was made of, Prime Minister Trudeau talking on the Joe Rogan podcast. None of it was true. 
None of it was true, but it sounded, except for a couple, there were a couple things in there that made you, you know, perk your ears up and go, wait a second. But had they not included those way over the top comments, you could have very easily believed that was true. Very easily. No, definitely. And it becomes better and better technology and available to more and more people. And as long as we don't put some stops or, or guidelines or or, or, or stamp it, you know, to, to, to differentiate between real voice and non-real voice or, or uh, the things to do that we can do to prevent this mayhem from happening. Right. And so you mentioned elections and that's, I think that's a terrific example because let's say we have a federal election and the day before the election, one of the leaders, all of a sudden a video pops up of them saying something horrendously racist, just as an example, by the time we figure out whether it's true or not, we could already have the election that could spin the results of an election. Exactly. It's, it, it, it will be too late. And elections are like a momentary event, but what's happening now with these technologies, it's, it's, it, it touches everything from copyright infringements to, to, um, uh, to uh, the job market that is changing to uh, not to say anything about what's going on with the algorithms that they're biased and they discriminate. Uh, I mean, uh, not only the algorithms, also those who use or those who make it. Um, so there's there's so many issues involved. So I'm I'm happy um, that these topics uh, attract more and more attention. Mm. And and you know one of the things, an election is a very large deal. Of course, if this was somehow affecting an election, but we've got a war going on now in Ukraine, and I can only imagine maybe not in this war, but there will be future wars. I'm sure if all of a sudden a leader who is involved is on video or audio announcing that we are launching nuclear strikes. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, it becomes like, it's, it's almost terrifying to think by the time we sort out what's true or what's not, what could happen? Yeah. We just don't want to get to this, uh, too late scenario. That of course, those of course would be the, the worst case scenarios, but let, let's go back to something. Cause you said, you know, this could be a social thing. This could be something that affects smaller parts of our life. Um, if you let your imagination run for five seconds, you could probably think of a million different ways that computers could, if they were given the ability to, well, formulate thought, I guess is the idea for artificial intelligence that could work against us in certain ways or work against certain people in certain ways. Yeah, so definitely Mani- manipulation is one of the worries that uh, that we have, and it's 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 not only manipulation by the AI. You know that uh, we sometimes chat with this AI, and uh, those of, of us who experience the software, the um, know that uh, when we expect the answer, it looks like as someone is typing it, but nobody's typing it. It 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 pretends to be as if it was a human. Um, so. These kind of things, even when we receive a smiley, you know, uh, like a, uh, something like this, we we interpret it in, in some kind of a way, but that's kind of a manipulation um, that we're experiencing. And I don't think, or I do think, let's speak in a positive way, that when I speak with a technology uh, or a device, um, I want to know that I'm speaking with a device. Uh, so that's one kind of manipulation that uh, we experience. 
Um, when when Dr. Hinton resigned earlier this week, one of the things that he pointed to as a concern of his was something called deep learning. Can you explain deep learning and why that is a problem potentially? Um, I can try. So deep learning is, um, deep learning use something we call neural networks to learn patterns in, 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 in data. Um, it can handle really complex patterns and like large amounts of data to draw insights from, um, the, it's, it's, think of it as like, when we say deep, like the word deep refers to the use of like so many different layers. Um, with the analogy to the human uh, uh, neural network that enables um, humans, or in this case, the model, to learn com- complex patterns and make um, accurate predictions. And that would potentially, I mean, theoretically, as I understand it, tell me if I'm wrong, but theoretically, the idea is if you have computer mainframes that can absorb all this material, it, it, it's not unreasonable to think there's a time when the computer would be able to hold far more information than a human brain and retrieve it much more quickly and make decisions much more quickly because it's got all that information immediately at its fingertips. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And part of the problem with AI is that uh, the algorithm do um, um, uh, take decisions and take decisions autonomous. Uh, this technology, unlike other technologies, take decision and autonomous, and that, it learns with this machine learning. So they become better and better at what they learn. And that and, seems that yeah. seems to be that from from what I'm reading again, that seems to be one of the real concerns is that we create a machine that eventually does better at thinking than humans do. And, and if that's reality, if that's a possibility, that that's the real thing. So I don't know. I don't know if it emulates a, a human mind. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's those large language models that now everyone discusses about uh, are statistical models that predict words according. There's nothing more than that, and we should treat it as it, as it is. But at the same time, um, there's also I think needs to to mention that there are very positive uses to these kind of things, these kind of technologies. But at the same time, um, it becomes available to everyone and harm becomes a potential, uh, much more easier to be done. So we, we have to do many things about it. There's many things to do now. Oh, the, I, I don't think there's any question about the, you can, in any, in any situation with any kind of technology, you can see where this could benefit us. I mean, I, I think it's, no, no one has, I don't think we have created, we, not me, but I don't think society, I don't think scientists have created AI to be evil. Uh, they, they've created it to try and benefit society, I think, I assume. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, but what we see is some kind of, I think, at least the way I see it, or people in, in the community that I'm involved with see it, is a kind of a sentiment change. Because so far, I think in the last uh, few decades, um, technology was hyped in a very positive way. And as a solution to all problems that you will raise, somebody will come up and say, let's be innovative and come up with a technological solution to it. And I think that uh, in recent years, the sentiment begins to change. and. What we witness now, beginning with the, with, with all the things that currently and the latest news about uh, um, Hinton uh, quitting Google, is uh, some kind of a sentiment change in, in the sense that we now much more skeptical about how 
corporations deal with technology and what technology can, how technology can change society. We're not naive anymore as we were 20 years ago. So, okay, we've got a few more minutes here. One of the other things, and again, this has come out from a number of the people who have been signatories to this letter, and everyone's going to come at this from a different perspective, uh, for sure. But one of the other concerns people have is as these things get better, you could have 10,000 people using AI for a very positive society building way. It would take one bad actor to use this in a negative way that could be very dangerous. Is that reasonable? Yeah, but what we worry is actually the 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 AI itself, like the 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 interface in which we speak with, that opens the problem. It's not the the it's not only the one individual that will make something bad with the technology. It's it's the fact that the technology itself it 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 um it allows it. It uh, um, for example, there's so many privacy concerns involved with people typing prompts and those prompts. Who knows what happens or they scrape the web for information and maybe they don't want the the the, the information that people already put in the web maybe i deleted something from the web and then the loud language mm-hmm. model already learned it so it's still there so what happens with that um so i think that it's less of the individual that will use it in a harmful way and more about allowing these harmful things that happen in routine do you believe there will come a day, though, with the technology as it advances, that the that we will have an AI that is self-operating almost, for lack of a better term? Um, so I think we already have many technologies that are self-operating. Um, uh, it could be even the spell checker in the in the uh, in the computer that okay, I use. That okay. They, in a way, operate. But also, you know, in uh, public infrastructure, a lot of our economy is automated in, in various ways. And those autonomous algorithms are used, um, I think, everywhere in our daily lives. But we still have control over those. We can still go in and adjust those because we are still in control of those things. I guess the, the question is, is there, do we run a risk where we get to a point where it's beyond our control to control these things? So I think the worry now is not to, to lose control of the artificial intelligence, but the worry is where do we go here as a society? How do we take decisions about these risks? Because those who develop the technologies and those who invest the technology, um, mostly, yeah, I, I, they don't always see the same interest as others. And now it's time to put a break um, on what we allow and what we don't allow. And I don't know in advance what what the terms are but it became such a powerful technology that it's all over the world now we have to we have to come up with uh with solutions and we better do it now one more thing before i let you go and this is sort of where i think you were alluding to at the very beginning with the effects that it could have would it be a reasonable thing to say that there are an awful lot of people's jobs that in short order with the way AI is going, that their jobs would be superfluous, their jobs would not be needed, and we would suddenly have an awful lot of people who we didn't need doing their work anymore, suddenly they have no purpose for them. So, I I, I don't know how to predict the future. I I guess, like, my guess is as good as anyone else, I think. I don't have any um, insight about that. Maybe it's a gradual process, but I can tell you um, two surprises. The first surprise is that uh, 15 years ago, everyone that was dealing with AI ethics, um, first of all, 
people asked what it is, what are you doing there? <laughs> and we all thought that the first one to lose the jobs would be the those who work with their hands. And that's not happened. The first ones uh, yeah. that were threatened by the AI were actually people who are creative, use their words, use their... So it's surprising. And we, that's the second thing. The second thing is that uh, expect a surprise, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. it's it's such a fascinating topic, and as I say, just the the idea that one of the people who was very much a builder of this has stepped away and urged caution. It, it becomes a very interesting story, absolutely for sure. Um, Ori Freeman, Dr. Ori Freeman from uh, McMaster, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Thank you so much for having me. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.